My name is Chris Noble, and welcome to this series on Catholic apologetics. It's been a good series so far, and I've joined it quite a bit. I hope you're enjoying it too. Today, I'm going to talk about the Eucharist and the Mass. Very common among Christians for, for many centuries. I'm going to start with talking about John chapter 6. St. John's chapter 6. This is the, the key chapter on the establishment of the Eucharist. It's the key passage in which Christ speaks about the sacrifice that will be instituted at the Last Supper. It's really the, the key passage here. Now the, now, the narrative begins on the eastern shore of Lake Galilee with the feeding of 5,000. The disciples that night got in the boat and went to the western shore, and Jesus caught up with them by walking on the water. The next morning, the crowds came to Jesus, and they asked when he had left to go across the lake. The answer to them was, Work to earn food which affords or gives you continually eternal life. He began immediately, that was John 6:27. He began immediately to teach them about the bread of life. Now, he had given the people their fill of natural bread. Now he wanted to teach them about supernatural bread. And verse 30 begins a discussion in a synagogue at Capernaum. And the Jews say, what sign can you perform? Our fathers had manna in the desert. And what sign can you give us? John 6:31. Jesus said to them, it is I who am the bread of life. John 6:34. Later, he says, I myself am the bread of life that has come down from heaven. And now, what is this bread that I am to give? It is my flesh given for the life of the world. John 6, verses 51 and 52. Later, he repeats these words with extra emphasis and adds the statement about his blood. And he says, You can have no life in yourselves unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. The man who eats my flesh and drinks my blood enjoys eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives continually in me, and I in him. That's John 6, verses 54 to 57. Now, there's no attempt here to soften what he's saying. Jesus does not attempt to soften it at all. He does not attempt to correct any misunderstandings, because there were none. There's no evidence in the scriptural text that there were any misunderstandings here. They understood quite well what he was saying. There's no evidence for somebody saying this is a metaphor, you know, that he's saying that my flesh is like blood or something like that. My flesh is like bread. There's no evidence of that in the text either. On other occasions, when the disciples were confused about a teaching, Christ would clarify it. Here he clarified nothing. He only repeated to emphasize what he was saying. Now, what was the reaction of the disciples? Well, they said, this is strange talk. Who could be expected to listen to it? Now, these were people who had walked with Jesus, seen him perform miracles. They knew that he was an extraordinary man, but they drew the line here at the teaching of the Eucharist. It's also very interesting that here Judas fell away. John 6:67 says, Many of his disciples went back to their own ways and walked no more in his company. The tragic thing. But he did not correct these first protesters. He didn't correct them at all. He just left it as it was. He gave them the teaching, and either you accept it or reject it. Twelve times he said that he is the bread that came down from heaven, and four times Christ said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, there are many objections to this teaching. 
and I'll try to answer a few of them, try to answer a few of these objections. The first one is the argument against this being a literal text, that we should not take it literally, that Jesus is not literally the body and blood that we eat, that the word is my flesh and is real food and is blood means represents. It doesn't mean is, it means represents. Okay, My flesh represents the bread. My the bread represents my flesh. However, the Greek word for is here means literally is. It can be used figuratively, but it is the Greek word that is most commonly used for the word is, the literal is. Now, if this crucial word means represents, why didn't the Greeks put the word represents in there? Why didn't they, why didn't they translate the Hebrew or the Aramaic, I should say, from so that it was represents? That's not there. The word is is there. We have to take it for what it says. Another common ad objection is that Christ was speaking figuratively in John 6. It is said that in other places of the gospel, he speaks figurative, figuratively, like I am the vine, or I am the door, or I am the gate, or I am the light, or I am the root. Okay? And they say, well, in John 6, he's just speaking figuratively as well. You know, I'm like the vine. You know, I compare to a vine. I compare to the light. Now, there's really no logical parallel between this is my body and I am the vine. There's no logical parallel, and I'll show you why. The images, vine and door and light, are symbols in their very nature. These words are used symbolically. They are, they are symbolic in the way they are used. Um, Jesus is the vine because he is the sap of my supernatural life. You know, he's like the sap and the vine. Okay, he's like the sap and the vine. The Holy Spirit comes from him. The door, he's like the door because I go through heaven. I go, I get to heaven through him. But a piece of bread is no way like his flesh. A piece of bread is no way like his flesh. Of its very nature, it can't symbolize the actual body of Christ. Bread can't symbolize a body. It's not like it. Christ clearly excludes this interpretation by saying, the bread I give is my flesh for the life of the world, and my flesh is meat indeed. There's no room for a metaphorical or figurative interpretation. His flesh is to actually be eaten, not commemorated in a symbolic way. Now, it's certain that the early church took John 6 and other accounts of the, last, of the Last Supper literally. There's no record in the early church of doubting this Catholic interpretation. There's no document in which the literal interpretation is uh, opposed by the metaphorical interpretation. So, so by the absence of objections shows that the church accepted this interpretation of these texts. Another objection. John 6:64 says, "Only the spirit gives life, the flesh is of no avail. The words I've been speaking to you are spirit and life." Now there are those who would say that the word flesh here is being opposed to spirit, and that the word flesh means the flesh of Jesus, the flesh he just said that we must eat. So they would say that spirit opposes flesh. Well, that's not true. Flesh is being used here in the Pauline sense. It's the Greek word sarx, and it's the word that means sinful nature, concupiscence, our, our fleshy, selfish, sinful nature. What's being opposed here is not the spirit in the flesh, but the spirit in sinfulness. That word sarx can mean flesh, but in this context it makes no sense. So that interpretation is a misinterpretation and a misunderstanding of the Greek there. 
Secondly, can anybody seriously believe that Christ just gave this teaching that you, he, you must eat my body and must, eat my, must drink my blood and then totally contradict himself? It doesn't make any sense, and it makes the scripture writers look stupid. It makes Christ look stupid. It, it, it's like saying, here, I want you to, this is what you have to do to receive eternal life, but then a few verses later he says, oh, no, wait a minute, forget it. That doesn't matter. That, that, that contradicts the sense of that entire chapter. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 26 to 32. There are those who object to a literal... Um, those who object to a literal uh, interpretation of the Eucharist have the hardest time with this particular verse, this particular chapter. I'll read it to you. If anyone eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily, he will be held to account for the Lord's body and blood. For the Lord's body and blood. He is eating and drinking damnation to himself. If he eats and drinks unworthily, not recognizing the Lord's body and blood for what it is. So, in order to eat and drink unworthily, how could somebody be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord if it weren't really there? The presence of Christ's body is necessary for an offense committed against it. Now I'd like to speak about the Last Supper. The Last Supper is prefigured in the Old Testament. There are many figures or prophetic realities that existed in the Old Testament that foreshadowed the Eucharist. The consecration in the Catholic Eucharist is carried out by the great prayer of consecration, which begins with the prayer of thanksgiving. Now, this is a significant, a significant part of this prayer is the remembrance of the great works of God. This remembrance rests on faith in what God has done in the past in order to find hope for the future, what he will do in the present. This very fact, this very prayer, shows the continuity between the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the sacraments, and invites us to look in the Old Testament for the prefiguration of the New Testament and the sacraments. There is a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the Catholic Church brings that continuity together in the sacraments, in the sacraments of initiation and in the Eucharist. Now there are four main types or figures or foreshadowings of the sacrifice of Christ in the New Testament. There's the rock of Horeb, there's the manna in the desert, there's the Passover meal, and there's the bread and wine offered by Melchizedek. Now I'm going to talk about just the bread and wine of Melchizedek. And I'll talk about that in a few minutes when we come back for the next part of the show. talking about the Eucharist and the Mass, and I'm on the part in this talk talking about the Last Supper and the prefiguration of the Last Supper. Now, I'm talking about Melchizedek, the ancient Old Testament king and priest who offered bread and wine 
He was a priest of ancient Salem, and you can find accounts about him in Genesis 14 and 31 and Joshua 9 as well. And in Psalm 110, David carries on Melchizedek's role as king. The bread and wine were considered from a very ancient by the Christians to be uh, from an ancient date to be a figure of the Eucharist. The, the bread and wine of Melchizedek. The early Christian church talked about them quite a bit. Saint Cyprian, Saint Ambrose, and others. Now, the bread and wine of Melchizedek is the clearest illustration in the Old Testament that Christ would offer a true sacrifice to God in bread and wine, and that He would actually use these elements. It's the truest prediction is the clearest prediction in Genesis 14:18 and in Psalm 110 um, it is predicted that Christ will become a priest according to the order of Melchizedek that is offer a sacrifice in bread and wine now the sacrifice on Calvary on the cross is not being spoken of here the sacrifice of bread and wine the Last Supper as the establishment of the mass is being spoken of here and also its continuous celebration in Hebrews 7, Hebrews 7, the author talks about Jesus and Melchizedek, and he talks about them together in uh, Hebrews uh, also. You might want to check Hebrews 5 and, and also chapter 6. The man Jesus descended from Abraham, originally from Adam. According to Hebrews, Jesus is the priest, as the priest, exercises the perfect priesthood, which is not connected with the priesthood of Levi, but is, connect, but is connected with the royal priesthood of the Davidic Messiah, David, who is a successor of Melchizedek. From Genesis on, this priest king is seen as superior, very different than the, than the Levitical priests. Melchizedek means my king is justice. He was the king of Salem, a king of peace, king of peace, Salem or Shalom. Uh, he was a mysterious figure, but we do know this, this much about him. Now, now, doesn't Jesus bring justice and peace? Isn't that what Christ does? Doesn't he fulfill this kind of a prefiguration in the Old Testament? The solemn oath in Psalm 110 says, Before the day star, like the dew, I have begotten you. That phrase can only refer to Jesus because who was begotten before the day star? Only Jesus could be. It goes on, The Lord has sworn and he will not repent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The, the, the priestly line is going to be continued from Melchizedek to Christ. Now, Melchizedek was a stranger in Israel. He was a member of all the nations, so his priesthood had a very universal sense about it. It was greater than the Levitical priesthood. Only Jesus fulfills these scriptures about the priesthood of Melchizedek. He's the only figure, the only person that could be fulfilling these scriptures. Now, there are four New Testament texts that talk about, that report the institution of the Eucharist. Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. Mark 14, 22 to 25. Luke 22, 15 to 20. And 1 Corinthians 11, 23. In spite of small variations, scholars are unanimous in saying that these four accounts are remarkable in their accord in the substance of the words used and on the significance of the rite. They have to be talking about something that actually happened. In the account of 1 Corinthians 11, 23-25, it said, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I handed on to you. Those two key terms, received and handed on. Namely, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and after he had given thanks, broke it and said, 
This is, there's that is again, my body, which is for you. Now, Paul's repeating these words. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, phrases like handed on and words like received and remembrance indicate reflecting um, and echoing Luke, the way Luke used these terms, traditional terms, things that are being handed on, things um, that are paradosis in Greek, things that are being handed down. Paul is handing down what Jesus instituted here. The f <clears throat> Paul received it and handed it on. Now these passages, the Last Supper, as Mass was being celebrated in the New Testament church, Paul is following Christ's commands to continue the tradition that was established. The prophet Malachi foretold the rejection of the Jewish priesthood and predicted a new sacrifice would be offered in every place. Malachi 1, verses 10 to 11. Now he said there would be one, not many sacrifices, but one that would be offered everywhere. Now Christ's sacrificial death on the cross took place in one place and one time only. So we must look for a sacrifice apart from Calvary one that is given in the form of bread and wine that happens everywhere, that can happen everywhere, universally. Only the Mass fulfills this prophecy. Secondly, if all people were saved in the moment on Calvary, why does the Church continue to offer the sacrifice of the Mass? If all people were saved, why do we need this continual representation of the effective grace of Calvary in the Mass? Well, first of all, all people were not saved on Calvary. Does that shock you? They were redeemed. We are redeemed. Christ did his act of salvation, and he saved us all potentially, if you will. Salvation is our acceptance of that act and putting faith and love in Jesus Christ. It's the completion, the regeneration, our full cooperation and love of Christ. That's salvation. So salvation is a process. Redemption was an event, and salvation makes that, the salvific work of Christ makes that event present to us now, and we say yes to it, and then when we are perfectly sanctified, we are saved. Since we were not present at Calvary, we need to be reminded of what God has done for us. And we need to be brought into contact with the saving power of the priestly sacrifice of Christ. Christ doesn't die again. He's continually making intercession for us at the throne of the Father. The Mass makes his saving sacrificial power present to us that we can partake of it. So what Jesus did in the past is present to God in heaven, and Christ makes that sacrifice effective for us, present to us now. And that's what the Mass is. Christ does not die every time the Mass is celebrated. He died once. The last point I'd like to make is about the Messianic banquet. Now, you notice I said earlier that there are two main aspects in the ancient catechisms of the Catholic Church about the Mass two main themes, the Mass as sacrifice and the Mass as the Messianic banquet. In the ancient church, they understood these two themes very well and talked about them in a lot of catechetical texts. Now, throughout the Jewish tradition, there's a series of texts describing the Messianic blank blessings reserved for the end of time. Many texts in the Old Testament talk about what God's going to give us in the end time. It's described very often as a sacred banquet, as a meal. Now, the ritual banquets of the law and the covenant that, that the Jews had were a figure 
of the Eucharist, a, a prefiguration of the Eucharistic banquet of the Catholic Church and of the Messianic banquet in heaven. St. Ambrose talked about this Messianic banquet and quoted Proverbs, saying that Proverbs was talking about this Messianic banquet, referring it to the Eucharist and to heaven. Isaiah talks about it a lot, and he has a very good description in, in chapter 55. He says, very famous verse, All you that thirst, come to the waters. All you that have no money, make haste, buy and eat. Hearken diligently to me, and eat that which is good, and your soul shall be delighted in fatness. I love that, that phrase, be delighted in fatness. This theme is also in Isaiah 65 and many other places. <clears throat> the Old Testament banquet takes place in the house of wisdom, the temple. It's on the mountain in Isaiah 25. God dwells on the mountain. The Messiah will make his appearance on the mountain. Now these are all prefigurations of the new covenant. The messianic banquet, the true messianic banquet, will surpass, and this is according to the Old Testament text, the Jewish liturgical banquet, of which they are only a figure. They're not on the level of the Messianic banquet because the Messianic banquet takes place in a temple on the mountain, that is, in a transformed world where God is fully present, that is, heaven. The Paschal meal is also a figure of the kingdom to come, of the Messianic banquet. And Luke 22:15 echoes this Jewish interpretation and, is, and, and says that we are in continuity with that Paschal meal, we fulfill it in the Eucharist for earth and it will be fully fulfilled in heaven at the Messianic banquet. Now, the Eucharistic meal, which provides a real historical concrete link between all three um, banquets, the Old Testament banquet and the Messianic banquet, and it's the, it's, it's the second, it's the link between the Old Testament and the Messianic banquet, that it provides this continuity, a fullness of vision for all these, what these are signifying, this heavenly meal that we partake in. Now in the Old Testament we had the Paschal meal, and then we had the Last Supper, and the Mass continues the Last Supper, the New Covenant in Christ's blood, and takes us to the heavenly banquet. So we have God present to us concretely in the Eucharist, with us presently and fully as foreshadowing to the uh, messianic banquet and as a way as a means to that full banquet of Christ where we drink his body and blood fully for salvation the heavenly banquet is also portrayed in marriage symbolism in the uh, song of songs in the Old Testament you have the bridegroom and you have the church Christ is the church and the bridegroom is his lover the, the fathers talked about that a lot use the symbolism a lot Jesus talked about many parables of marriage, and this, these parables of marriage were parables of the Messianic banquet. In Matthew 22 and 25, and uh, in Luke 14, in, re, in Luke 14 in particular, in response to a man's statement who said, happy is the man who eats bread in the kingdom of God, Jesus told a parable about a dinner, about a banquet, and that was, he was teaching about the kingdom of God, teaching about heaven. Revelations 19 says, Hallelujah, the Lord is King, our God the Almighty. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For this is the wedding day of the Lamb. His bride has prepared herself for the wedding. She has been given a dress to wear made of the finest linen and brilliant white. 
the linen white dress are the virtues of the bride, are the virtues of God's people in the church. Now, what I've been trying to say is that the Eucharist carries us to heaven. The Eucharist, prefigured in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ's body and blood, continued in the Mass today, is that invitation of the bridegroom. It is the invitation of the bridegroom. God is saying, come to me. I want to marry you spiritually. I want you to eat this meal with me. I want you to have everything I have to give you. And the Eucharist symbolized that in a very concrete way and brings the spiritual renewal for us to participate in a foretaste of the heavenly banquet. The Spirit and the Broad say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the waters of life. Come to the Eucharist and experience God's free gifts of his living body and living blood. Thank you.